Malachi chapter 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, why have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the, the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But she ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Trying off, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. I implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will no accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled or diseased animals and offer them as a sacrifice, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable meal in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Father, very often we come thinking that we are swimming around in the very depths of your word and the very depths of theology when in fact we're swimming in the shallow end. And Father, tonight as we come to this passage in Malachi, Lord, there is a depth in it that is beyond us. Your mind, your counsel, your will and purpose, we cannot fully grasp here. But Father, what we can, we pray that it would lead us to know you bigger, to know your grace and mercy and to leave here praising you because of what we can grasp by the help of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Lord, help us tonight as we come to this passage in Malachi. Open your word for us and teach us, we pray. 
for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This book comes in a time in history in 460 BC. The people of God have returned from exile, which they were in for many generations, maybe one or two generations, and they're now back in the land of their forefathers, back in Jerusalem, but it's never been the same. It's never been the same as it was before they left. They've come back to a different situation, probably a little poorer and less well-off than they were. They've come back with great hope, and in a minute we'll see whether that hope was ever realized. And into this time and life of God's people, at this period in time, verse 1 comes, and it says this, and there are four things I'd like to draw out from verse 1 very briefly tonight. And the first is this, it says, an oracle. Do you see it in front of you? An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And this oracle is another word for vision or words, but it carries the idea of a burden. And so imagine for a moment that you have a rock in your hand. And for Malachi, it's like that. He has the words of God given to him, and he carries the burden, and he brings it to the people. But the burden also goes to the people because they're receiving the word of God, and they have to carry that burden. And that is the idea of oracle here. And so it starts off and it says, an oracle, the word or vision, but the idea of a burden being given to Malachi to bring to the people, but also for the people to receive. Secondly, we see from verse 1 that this is the word of the Lord. This is not the, the random thoughts, dreams, or ideas of some prophet that thought, hey, look what I'll do. I'll go to these people and tell them something. These are actually the very words of the Lord himself, Yahweh. And as we come to scriptures on a Sunday or in your home group this week, or if you're reading them for yourself, this is vital to grasp, isn't it? That the very words that you have in your hands is the word of God. That's why we read in 2 Timothy these very famous passages, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, uh, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here, God gives his word to the people. Seeing the scriptures as God breathed, inspired, changes the way that you approach them. It changes the way you read them and listen and respond to the word because you believe that these are the very words of God, not just man. But also we see that the word of God is not just for the nations around them, not to some distant acquaintance, but as it states in verse 1, God's word is to his people, Israel. And as we know, God and his people have history, don't they? They have a relationship. And so here we're God's dear people, and he gives them his word, the word of the Lord to Israel. And fourthly, you see, the words of God come through the prophet Malachi, which we know very little about, apart from the fact that he was probably a contemporary of Ezekiel, or sorry, Ezra and Nehemiah. But apart from that, we know very little, apart from the little footnote at the end of your Bibles, you see it in the NIV, it says, Malachi, my messenger. And so here at the very start, here is Malachi as God's appointed prophet, bringing God's word to God's people, because as Peter reminds us in the New Testament, every prophecy, for a prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The book of Malachi is here tonight as an oracle, the word of God to his people through the man that is the, his messenger, Malachi. And the book of Malachi, as we go over these next couple of nights, 
delivers six kind of wake-up calls to the people, calling them to renew their loyalty and obedient, covenant loyalty and covenant obedience to God. The section of verses 2 to 4 go to the very center of the problem, the heart of the issue that will further unfold in the book of Nehemiah or of Malachi. And so tonight we are looking at these very short verses so that we grasp something of what is the nub of the problem, the heart of the issue for the people. And in verse 2, do you see it? The Lord says to his people, I've loved you. I have loved you. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had Valentine's Day, and I'd probably like to do a straw poll. If you're a romantic or a cynic with regards to Valentine's Day, it doesn't really matter because you cannot avoid whether you're the romantic type or just the one, a oh, hallmark, they've robbed us. But whatever way you think about it, millions of pounds is spent buying cards, dinners, flowers, in an effort to say to the special one in your life, I love you or you're making up for something, something, something that you've done wrong. <laughs> Whatever it is, the bigger the bunch of flowers, the bigger the makeup, I think, sometimes, isn't it? But that's the idea. I love you is what it's expressing. And the pressure from media, the pressure from having a Valentine's Day is there. What will she think if I get her nothing? You know, and it is that. And here that expression, I love you, is expressed here in verse, in verse 2. Now, it's not the romantic love, the eros love that we are acquainted with. Yet it is quite extraordinary, isn't it? that the Lord, the creator of the universe, God himself, verbally expresses to a people, I have loved you. Take that in for a moment, that here is the God who spoke creation into being. Here is the God of the Old Testament that they would have known. And he verbally says to his people, I have loved you. I love you. Some of us get uncomfortable with that kind of language, don't we? And we know from the sweep of Old Testament Scripture that God has initiated the move to call a people to himself. Do you remember when we go back to Genesis 12, we see Abraham, a pagan, probably a sun worshiper, called by God, and he says this, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. The focus on those verses in Genesis is this, is that God continually reminds us, I will, I will. It is the initiating move of God to bring a people to himself. And here in Malachi verse, chapter 1, verse 2, he says to them, I have loved you. I have loved you. He is reminding them and us of his relationship and love to this nation and people through the covenants he made with them. They are a people who can look back on their history and culture and say that God has loved us. He's revealed himself to us. He has spoken to us before. He has guided and directed us. Remember that in Exodus when we did it in the morning, that pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. That's God. He did that for us. He has saved us from Pharaoh and his people. He, we are his people. He is our God. And it doesn't matter what episode you take in their history, God has loved them despite their sinfulness, their disloyalty, their unfaithfulness and idolatry. It's an up and down relationship that they have. But look at the response and attitude of God's people to God's, to the Lord's declaration of, I have loved you in verse 2. But you have asked, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Boom. 
It's like dropping a grenade in, isn't it? And I imagine, you know, in a marriage relationship, if this was to happen, take, for example, Brian and Fiona, maybe as two examples. They've been married for many years. The kids are gone. The nest is empty, and it has left a huge gulf in their life, and they're readjusting to it. There's been some fiery rows between them over the last number of months. And in one such row, Brian, in an outburst, deeply hurts her by saying to her, how have you loved me? That line in a marriage has the effect of questioning all the expressions of love that have happened over the last number of days, weeks, months, even years. It casts doubt, doesn't it, on the love between them. But get this, it put pressure on going forward, doesn't it? Because you're thinking, well, I have to show him how much I love him, or else you'll just go, forget about him. <laughs> and it's that same attitude and response that we see here, but it's also true for teenagers, isn't it? Take, for example, the teenage boy or girl. Their parents work their socks off for them to give them the best opportunities in life. Everything is provided for them. They have the latest clothes, gadgets, and gear. All their needs are met. And yet in the battle for independence over wanting to go out with friends one night, the worst thing that a teenage boy or girl can say to loving parents is the resentful phrase, how have you loved me? How do you care for me? How do you love me? It's a phrase that again brings a parent's love into the spotlight, casts doubt over it, and it heaps pressure on them. And if you're thinking of those two scenarios of marriage and the teenager, you're definitely asking, aren't you? What's going on in the heart of someone like that when they express this line, how have you loved us? But more importantly, what's going on in the heart, mind, and attitude of God's people when they respond like this to the Lord? And for a few moments tonight, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper, if I can, into the response and attitude of the heart by the people of God. They are questioning God's love for them. Why? One wonders whether their experiences in life has caused them to question the love of God for them. They've been exiled to Babylon, albeit for their own disobedience. Their hope of returning home, I'm sure, would have buoyed their expectation that their national life was going to improve, a return to the glory days. But the return never brought the halcyon days again. They're still waiting for the promised Messiah. Life is hard for them but economically. And this, one wonders whether their life experience lends itself to questioning God's love for them. And I imagine for many of us here tonight, perhaps life and the experiences that we have have caused you to question God and His love for you individually or corporately. Sickness has come. Death has cast its dark shadow over you and your loved ones. There's been those relationships that have been unrepairable, Subtle and yet significant disappointments at work have occurred, and it has caused that creeping doubt to come in and question, does God love me? How has he loved me? And don't hear me wrong tonight. The Psalms are full of questioning regarding God's ways, his purposes, and plans. Many times the Psalms, Psalmist will call out, how long, O Lord? O Lord, act don't let this or that go unpunished. And you know what? There's a time and place for crying out to God, appealing to His character and His way over situations, injustices, and people. But here in Malachi, the questioning by the people is deeper 
and it is more self-focused than what I've just described. One commentator puts it like this, and he's quite blunt when he writes this. He says, if we assess God's love by how He meets our needs, then our greedy hearts will always find Him wanting. What that means is, if we understand our relationship with God as something like a slot machine, that He's here to meet my needs, that He is here to fulfill me, well then the reality is our greedy hearts, our deceitful hearts will always find Him wanting. And so often the questioning of God's love is rooted in how God has not met my needs, whether they are real or perceived needs. And here in Malachi, the people of God are calling into question His love to Him. How have you loved us? Peter Adams again captures well what is happening within the heart and life of the people of God when he writes this, to deny that God loved them was to deny God. And to deny the grace of God in making them His people, to deny them their own identity as God's flock, and to deny their special calling to bring special blessing to all the nations of the world. It's a dangerous place to be when you deny God by questioning His love. And what we will see in the book as it progresses in, from chapter 1 onwards is a people, because of their questioning of God's love, they begin to do things half-heartedly. They're trying to get away with the bare necessity. I have a good lamb, but I'll bring the one with the broken leg. The leaders turn away from God's teaching and way. They become unfaithful in many facets of their being and life corporately as God's people. And God, through His Word, is admonishing them and judging them in, in Malachi. This is the root of the problem. They are questioning the love of God for them, and it leads them down a dark path. But the big question from all this in verses 2 to 4 is, how does God respond to the questioning of His love for them? If it was you, what would you do? If it was us, I think we'd say, get lost. <laughs> I'm out. Or we would try and prove it for those who are of that ilk. We'll just say, look, I'm going to make it up. I'm going to try my best to prove my love for this person, for God. Or else I say, get lost. What does God do? Does he plead with them? Does he try and prove his love for them? by caressing their needs, their egos, their feelings? What does the Lord do in response in, in, to their questioning? And what He does, if you have a look at it in verse 2, is He asks them a question that leads to a profound answer. And the question is this, it's very difficult. The question is verse 2, was not Esau's, Esau, Jacob's brother? For God's people in Malachi's day, this is a simple answer. For they knew their history, their forefathers, and so the, the answer to this question is simple on one level. If we brought a kid's own kid up here, they would have the answer, wouldn't they? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he was. <laughs> That's the answer. That is the answer to this question. It's simple, but it has a profound impact or answer behind it. And the Lord says in verse 3 to 4, yet I have loved Jacob but Esau I've hated. And I've turned Esau's mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, verse 4, who are the descendants of Esau, may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. This is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I'll demolish. 
They will be called the wicked land, a people under the wrath of the Lord. And in order to grasp what the Lord is saying here to His people in response to their questioning of His love, you need to recall some of the Genesis story. You know from your knowledge and reading of Scripture that Abraham and Sarah had a son called Isaac. And it was through Isaac that the covenant promises were coming through or realized. Isaac married Rebekah. And though, for, and though for a time she remained barren, she eventually had two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And if you read the Genesis account, it's quite humorous and yet funny. One was smooth-skinned and a bit of a home bird, loved to say around mammy. The other was red, it says, hairy. He had a garment on him, right? Grizzly Adams type individual who loved the outdoors. The family is so dysfunctional that dad loves Esau because he brings meat to him from the, from the land, while his mother, Rebecca, loves Jacob. And so for a few moments, I just want us to return to Genesis 25 for a moment. So pay, turn with me to page 26. Let me hear you flick over. Just, you're, you're still with me. Genesis 26, page, or 25, thank you. Yeah, Genesis 25, page 26. Because in the chapter that you have open in front of you, we're told certain things that are foretold about the twins' future before they're even born. And let's read from Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her womb, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and this is the key verse. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separ separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Verse 23 again, one will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. In the culture and times of the ancient Near East, the firstborn was always the main man, especially the firstborn male. He would have got the inheritance, the blessing. So for the older to serve the younger was not the norm. And we know from the rest of the chapters in Genesis that Jacob ends up getting Esau's birthright for a meal. We know that Jacob ends up getting the blessing from his father Isaac through deception with the aid of his mother Rebekah as she dressed him up to smell and feel like Esau to deceive their father. But the major point is this, that the family line through which the covenant promises of God was going to play out through was through Jacob. Who made this happen? Was it the deceiver that was Jacob himself, grabbing, ducking, and diving, deceiving all around him? Was it the favoritism of his mother, the naivety of his aging father, the foolishness of Esau? They all played their part. But ultimately, it was God who elected, who decided this was going to be the way. We read this in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 to 23, which we just read. The Lord said to Rebekah, this is what's going to happen. The older will serve the younger. One will be stronger than the other. And if you go into the New Testament, Paul writes this in, in Romans 9 about Jacob and Esau. He says this, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. 
Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob is the object of God's electing love. And Malachi 1 tells us that the Lord says, I have loved Jacob. Was Jacob any better than Esau? Was he any more deserving of God's favor over and above Esau? No. Jacob had many failings, sins and weaknesses, but God loved him, showed his favor to him. And that is the point that the Lord is making here in Malachi 1, that the Lord has loved Jacob and his people not because of who they are, not because of what he has done or how they have behaved or performed. No, God loved them because he loved them. And Deuteronomy 6 kind of summarizes this when it comes to the people of God because it says this, for you're a people, holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his segula, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all the nations. But it was because God loved you and kept the oath he had swore to his forefathers. Why did God choose Israel? Not because they were a great nation, big in number, no, but because God loved them and always keeps his promise. Here's what one commentator says, which is quite powerful. He says, God's love was in no way conditioned by the moral qualities of its object, but emanated from his will, sovereign will and mercy. This is it. So often when it comes to thinking about the doctrine or teaching of election, we raise questions. Is it fair? It focuses on self. What is it in certain people that God has chosen them over and above others? Are they holier? Is it that they have more faith? Is it that they're better people? No. Is it that they're worse? Is it that they're so much more sinful and rebellious? No. God's love is not in any way shaped or conditioned by any person's moral attributes or qualities, but it all stems from his sovereign will, mercy, and love. And that's what this passage is getting at here in Malachi in verses 2 to 3. God, in verse 2, takes his people here in Malachi on the journey of what happens to Esau and his descendants, how they weren't part of God's electing love, how their actions, in fact, led to wickedness and the wrath of God coming upon them. And when the people of God see how God deals with Edom, who are Esau's descendants, they say in verse 5, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. The praise of God here in verse 5 is not for the destruction or how God deals with the Edomites, but rather it is in recognition that they too, Israel, could have been dealt this way too had it not been for God's electing love. So they see what happens to Esau and they go, praise God. They don't go, praise God, because he's destroyed them even though they were enemies. In fact, he goes, praise God, because it, it could be us. We deserve exactly what the Edomites deserve. It is God's grace towards them, his love expressed to them, 
that leads them to praise God. And there I go, but for the grace of God. If you and I ever come near to the point of questioning God's love, heed the word of the Lord tonight from Malachi. He takes us back to the doctrine of election. And he says, it is by grace that I choose Jacob. This is what happened to Esau. And if you think this doesn't permeate all of Scripture, then follow with me with these lovely verses as I finish out tonight. Consider God's electing love. I have loved you. Romans 8 says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Consider God's electing love. I have loved you. When you think of Titus, at one stage we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, re of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Consider God's electing love. I have loved you, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Consider God's electing love. I have loved you, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, it's not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How can God's people then and us today ever say to God, how have you loved us? When God turns around and he says to us, I have loved you before the world ever began, before you ever said anything, before there was ever even a hair on your head, I chose you and called you to be my people. When we consider the electing love of God to people who are so undeserving of God's love, God has indeed said, I have loved you. Yes, you have. I want tonight to finish with words from James Montgomery Boyce, who served as senior minister for 32 years at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the States. He wrote about the doctrine of election in his excellent book, The Foundations of the Christian Faith. And he says, some people think it's useless. Some people think this doctrine is dangerous and, and harmful. But he wrote this at the very end. In applying it tonight, I hope it helps you. He wrote this, election eliminates boasting within Christian ranks. None of us tonight can say, God chose me and he got a good one. No, he didn't. Jacob couldn't say that. He couldn't turn around to God and go, you got one right deceiver here. He couldn't because election flattens it all out and says, 
God's will and purposes decided this. This doctrine encourages a love for God. That was the problem here in Malachi. They were doubting the word of God because it wasn't, he probably may not have been meeting their needs, but God takes them back to election of choosing them, not because they were great and big or who they were, but because he loved them, because he loved them, because he loved them. This doctrine encourages us to love God. This doctrine also encourages us in evangelism. You and I do not know whom God will draw unto himself. And so that helps us to proclaim Jesus. It helps us to proclaim the gospel. If election turns us inwards, we're not grasping it rightly. And tonight, as we think of these teaching from Malachi, election eliminates boasting within the Christian ranks. It also eliminates self-focus. It's about me choosing. It's about me deciding to follow Jesus. No. He chose you before the creation of the world. He regenerated you, gave you the spirit of God. And that's why we cannot boast. This doctrine encourages a love for God. And this doctrine encourages us in evangelism. Let me pray for us as we continue tonight. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And as we grapple with it, as we try and get our heads around election and that doctrine. Father, we thank you for that lovely phrase that you remind us tonight that we are loved, that the God who made this world says to a people who are so undeserving, I have loved you. Father, thank you for the lovely reminder in the confession that those of mankind are predestined unto life God, before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purposes and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ those who are his. Father, may this doctrine move us to praise. May it humble us, we pray. May it increase our love for you. And Father, may it keep us from boasting about ourselves or what we bring to the table. But Lord, most especially, may it encourage us in sharing the good news of Jesus with others, that they too may know the love of God, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.